Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Workplace Therapy. It's a weekly podcast where we discuss how we work together and how we heal together. Today, we're going to be picking up our second part of our conversation on trust and psychological safety in the workplace. And we're going to be discussing how do you know if your organization has it and how can you cultivate it in your organization? So I think before we get started on discussing all of that, because I'm really excited, I did end the last episode with asking you a question around if you think that a results-based organization, so purely results-based, can have psychological safety. And I would love to hear your thoughts. Right. Yeah. Thanks for the reminder. I remember that what I said at the time was, I do think that it's possible with a caveat. And that caveat is, it depends on what you define as a result. Um, And I very much believe that that's true. I think a lot of organizations that pride themselves as being results-based organizations have a very narrow definition of what they consider a result. And they tend to be very limited metrics um, when it comes to painting the broader picture of what's going on. So these are things typically that shareholders or boards value, like top-line revenue, user growth, uh, operating expenses, whether they're trending like up or up or down, uh, things like that. And while those things are important, I'm not advocating for not tracking those things. What I am advocating for is adding metrics to that data set that put the employment experience on par with these other more financially motivated metrics. Because the employment experience is often a lagging indicator of results to come. And I mentioned in the last episode that there's a tendency for businesses, both in the startup world and, you know, in the kind of public company space, to have blinders based off of the incentives that are put before them, which is often to please the board or to please their shareholders on a 90-day basis. And the thing with employment experience is, both the results that you achieve and the consequences of your actions might take longer than 90 days to play out. But it's important that you have your eye consistently on those metrics so that you can be responsive to trends as they're emerging and not be left holding the bag two or three quarters from now when you realize that you're losing customers hand over fist because your employees are disengaged and your revenue is dropping and your profitability is spiraling out of control. And you may not be able to take over the reins and decisively correct for that at that point because it's too late and you haven't been like watching what's under the hood and what's broiling under the surface. And so What metrics specifically do I think that results-based organizations should kind of put up there right on par with their financial metrics? I mean, a classic one is employee engagement score, which is basically taking the net promoter score methodology and applying it internally to your employee base. And for those of you who aren't familiar with net promoter score methodology, basically, it's a system that, uh, that has a scale between zero and 10 and asks you, uh, what is your likelihood to recommend this company as an employer of choice to your friends and family? 
And if you scored a nine or a 10, you're considered a promoter. You're actually really likely to say good things about that company to your friends and family. If you score it a seven or an eight, you're considered to be neutral, not harming, uh, but also not really kind of promoting. And if you score between zero and six, you're considered to be a detractor. That means like when given the chance, you're likely to say things that are negative about your employment experience. And then you take your percentage of promoters and percentage of detractors, you subtract those, and then that gives you your net promoter score. Um, So it's applied to consumers. It's also applied to employees. And that's not enough in and of itself, but it is a good health indicator to kind of tell you whether or not things are trending up or down, um, as long as you do it with some regularity. But then you also need to couple those insights with verbatims that you actually read and that you actually respond to. And then also pulse survey results, which are just small micro questionnaires of things that you think might be emerging trends that you send out to the rest of the organization and you get people to participate in. And then you need to activate your leaders to make sure that they're encouraging participation and they're giving people the confidence that these um, these surveys are anonymous. It's something I didn't mention earlier, but I think is absolutely necessary, right? To encourage people to give you a truthful assessment of how they actually feel. And then the last piece is it's not enough just to have these metrics. You have to have these metrics and you have to treat them with the exact same level of urgency that you would if it were a financial metric that is, you know, that's moving up or down, right? You need to celebrate it when it moves up. You need to thank people for their participation. Um, And when it goes down, you need to show that you're serious about closing that gap because you recognize and you are bought into the idea that the employee experience is just as important, if not more important, because it enables all of those other top line financial metrics. Um, And that is where I think a lot of companies just frankly don't do the work. I love that. I love that you expanded the definition of results beyond financial, because I I always did have a hard time of saying, oh, this is only results-based, but now I'm questioning, okay, what are those results? Um, So what, how can an organization actually know if they have psychological safety? Well, okay, so I'm gonna I'm going to stand on the shoulders of giants and um, and quote Amy Gallo here because she does in the article that we're reviewing uh, mention seven specific ways, and so I'll just read through them, um, and we can kind of discuss our perspectives on them. So, seven ways to know if your organization has psychological safety. So, number one, if you make a mistake on this team, it's not held against you. We talked about that um, in the last episode. Number two, members of this team are able to bring up problems and tough issues. And I think that's a direct outcome of number one. You feel safe bringing those things to the surface. And so therefore you bring up more problems. And so therefore you solve more problems. We talked about that a little bit in the last episode too. Number three, people on this team sometimes accept others for being different. Um, And this is, we talked about unity in company um, a couple of episodes back and This idea of not just accepting other people's differences, but leaning into them, understanding them, and leveraging them to maximum effect is what separates great high-performance teams from average teams or teams that, frankly, are just embroiled in conflict and never get anything done. They, you know, those teams that are embroiled in conflict 
see these differences as liabilities. They see them as moral failings, even like I'm superior. Why can't you just be more like me versus saying, hey, you are taking this from a completely different angle than I would have ever thought of. Right. Maybe there's value in the diversity of these perspectives. How do we capitalize and redeem that? Um, it's safe to take a risk on this team. You're seeing like a common theme here, right? Like in order to to make these big swings, you have to have trust that you're not going to be judged or fired for missing the swing. Um, It isn't difficult to ask other members of this team for help. Um, I think that's super important too. Um, Let's see. uh, I guess this is six. No one on this team would deliberately act in a way that undermines my efforts. Um, That's a good one. We can talk about that in a second, but I'm just letting that wash over me because I've been in teams that do not um, have that as part of their ethos or mantra. And it's, um, it's very, it can be a very rough place to be. And the last piece. So working with members of this team, my unique skills and talents are valued and utilized. So if I had run one critique for Amy is like, I don't think that this list is mutually exclusive and collectively exhaustive. Like I feel like the Venn diagram of like overlap here is pretty significant. Like, but you can see that trust and psychological safety manifests in like very related ways, but like really what it comes down to is, you know, we, we know that mistakes will happen. And rather than mistakes being inevitable and not acceptable, mistakes are inevitable and acceptable as long as you weren't learn from it, as long as you appreciate and respect each other, right? And as long as you like move forward and address it. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's kind of my take on that. Um, Sarah, like I saw some vigorous head nodding from you <laughs> as we were going through the list. What was coming up for you? When do you not see vigorous head nodding? Let's be honest. <laughs> I mean, when you disagree with me, when we're not in a psychologically um, safe environment and, um, and you're like, I don't know what Scott's talking about. I think you mentioned it a few times. I think trust is the underpinning of each one of these seven ways she mentions. And the thing that I thought about immediately, and this just goes back to my practitioner you know, perspective of being a researcher, I think you could take those seven elements that you just listed and create a scale and hand this out to your employees through that anonymous lens like you talked about to say like on a scale from one to 10, 10 being like you absolutely believe this to be true and zero being this is completely and utterly false. Where do you see yourself? And measuring your team just based on these seven ways, think about the amount of data and results. We talked about that earlier, the results that we're always chasing after. Um, This would give you really powerful metrics. I think the difficult thing in all of this, you know, we talked about um, how they tend to be lag measures of a company is we have to find a way to develop metrics in such a way that it brings elements like this to life and in the front of our results rather than something that's a nice to have in the views of stakeholders and board members. And so I think even just taking the seven that she has outlined so nicely here and measuring it, 
like you, Scott, I can think of so many teams where, unfortunately, every one of these, I was at zero, was not safe. And if a company had even showed this to me at the beginning and during my onboarding, and then I saw it show up, I mean, talk about a net promoter score, I'd be wanting to refer that company to everyone because I felt safe because it was based on trust. Yeah. I love the idea of taking these, excuse me, I love the idea of taking these attributes and actually surveying on them and measuring them. I think that's great. And then another thing that you had said, um, Sarah, in terms of like how these items are reinforced or not, I think it's, you know, I think leaders underestimate the power of what they praise and the questions that they ask, right? So what came up for me as you were speaking is how many times do we present out to executive leadership or senior management about a new initiative, right? And a lot of the questions about that initiative are about bottom line successfulness of the initiative. Did you come in on time? Did you come in on spec? Did you come in on budget? You know, and if you check those boxes, this is a good project. But how often do leaders say, okay, tell me about the team dynamics. Tell me about what you learned. Tell me about, did you engage other related stakeholders and make sure that they were in the loop? Did you seek other perspectives and other areas of expertise to make sure you had a full and comprehensive solution? You know, did you, um, you know, did the team manage conflict well? What do you think of your program manager? How did they display leadership? You know, did they institute trust and psychological safety for the cross-functional team that they were entrusted with? Right? These questions almost never come up, but they're probably more germane to the outcome because anybody can put together a deck clapping themselves on the back for a project, especially if it comes in on time on spec um, and on budget. But that doesn't mean... <laughs> That doesn't mean that that project is actually going to have the desired effect, right? Because the proof is really not in the delivery of that initial project, but in the adoption of that project over time. How many times have you been part of a project where, you know, you scope the initial piece and now it's ready for implementation and everybody's celebrating because it's like, oh, this looks great. And then you go to actually implement the thing and do the change management, and you haven't won over hearts and minds. You have lots of friction. People don't want to adopt the project because you haven't solicited them for their opinions. You haven't made them feel valuable. You haven't really sought their perspective, right? And then what ends up happening is you throw out the project. A few months later, you replace it with something that you completely redesigned from the ground up, and then you start the crazy cycle all over again, all because there wasn't this emphasis on really, truly developing these competencies of trust and psychological safety at the cultural level. And Scott, I would just add to those questions. I was getting goosebumps hearing you because I would have loved for a C-suite to ask me those questions. Having led a lot of projects myself, I just, it would be so helpful for me to reflect on my own leadership too, and not just like give the company information the other question I would add, though, is what was difficult and challenging for you and how did you mitigate it? Because 
that takes a level of vulnerability, but immediately builds trust. And I think if we start with the presence of saying, we will have conflict and conflict is actually super helpful and we expect it. Franklin, uh, Stephen Covey has a quote that I absolutely love. And he says, if two people have the same opinion, one is not necessary. And his idea behind it was that you want to have discourse. You want to have conflict. Things need to be difficult. But in order for you to have conflict that you work through, and then on the other side of that is courage, you have to have the safety. But in these questions that you just listed, Scott, an important part is reflecting on what was really pretty crappy about it. What didn't go well? Where did you fail? Where did you fall? And more importantly, how did you get back up? Because you, if you were successful on this project and you got back up, that's something that we can replicate and put into place and operationalize throughout the entire company on future projects. I, I love that. And just to kind of build on this snowball of momentum that we're building, it's like, I think a leader asking that question of like a program lead or department head, not only does it give you all the benefits that you talked about, Sarah, in terms of reflection and learning and creating this virtuous cycle of innovation, all of which are hugely important. But the other thing that it does is it creates a really powerful moment to celebrate the success of overcoming the adversity of overcoming that difficulty, right? Like how often do we celebrate that? Like we celebrate outcomes. We don't do a great job of like teaching people to celebrate the micro victories that happen every single day. Right. And so how taxing is that where you only get thanked or recognized if your project comes in on spec on budget, you know, and on time and like, you know, 90 days, six months after the project commencement. And there's not this continuous reinforcement of like, man, the way that you handle the divergence of opinions on that one aspect of the project, like that was just masterful facilitation and really great leadership. And that's exactly what we're looking for at this company. So thank you for your leadership, not just the things that you've done for us that can be like measured in terms of the outcomes of this project, but also we see you and how you navigate and conduct yourself as a leader every single day. And I want you to know that I see that that has multiplicative value and in a lot of ways that is way more important than whatever deliverable is on the line. You know, and I think it's because we don't have conversations like that where we don't pour into people and tell them the things that are actually powerful about what they're doing. That's why people don't do it. Because honestly, like being a great leader is hard. Cultivating trust and psychological safety is hard. It's so much easier just to write people off who are different than you, to not try to invest into understanding different perspectives to shut down conflict and dissent. It's so much easier, right? But it's not the right thing for so many reasons. And I think like 
if you don't have trust and psychological safety in your organization and you want it, you have to make it explicit when people are doing it well. And you have to put that on a pedestal. And like, that's one of the, your biggest jobs as a C-suite leader is to not only be a torchbearer for the values that you want in your company, but also to shine a light on when it is being done internally so that you can perpetuate that flywheel of momentum. So Scott, I actually have a really great example of a leader doing this and you'll like it because it's about you. (laughs) And this was, you know, when I first joined the team, you were my manager. We were a group of about seven, maybe early 20 somethings. So of course we were going to have a lot of learning and issues between the team, which we definitely did. Uh, But I remember an offsite that you did where you had us take a strengths test and guess who, like what strengths belong to which people on the team. And I remember it being really fun and it kind of opened up my eyes to say, yes, this person has strengths that are different from me. And that is great. There's no need to be competitive or to feel less than when all of us are bringing something different to the team. I was able to understand those people better that I didn't naturally get along with at the beginning and appreciate working with them a lot more. So thank you for doing that. And I think leaders can cultivate that by opening it up to the teams and and showing the differences are really strengths. Mm. Oh man, you took me, you took me back down memory lane, Skylar. Like it's so interesting. I think about our team a lot because I've led a lot of teams over the course of my career. And I remember telling you guys all the time that this team is something special. And I couldn't put my finger on it at the time, but it's true. It's like, I'm still in touch, you know, like 10 years later or something with all of you, like, and we all have very different relationships and very different contexts for why we've connected. But um, yeah, we connected and we stayed in touch. And I do think that like, now that I reflect back on it, um, and I, I don't take the credit here, <laughs> you know, um, I, I do think that the strengths exercise though, really helped us to start off on the right foot right? Where instead of waiting to allow conflict to kind of like brew, which it would have, because you guys were one of the most diverse teams, like attitudinally from a skill set perspective, like from a life stage perspective that I'd ever managed, like it shouldn't have worked, but it did. Right. And, um, and I think that, um, I mean, you mentioned that it was a strengths assessment. I'll go ahead and say, um, it was, it was Clifton strengths, strengths finders. And, um, and I have always loved Clifton strengths. I think that there are strengths and limitations to um, the overall the overall model that they use. But the big idea behind Clifton strengths, for those of you who have not taken the assessment, is that you know we're raised with this belief in America, especially that you can be anything you want to be. But I think intrinsically, like we all know, that's not true, right? Like there are limits to it. It's like I'm not going to be an NBA player. That's just not happening. I can train. I can do the best that I can. I can I can be like Rudy and just like never say no. Um, but I'm not going to be LeBron. That's just out of the cards for me, right? And so those are physical strengths. But we have and we have uh, an easy time identifying the limitations of our physical strengths. But we have a harder time accepting is the limitations of our kind of more intrinsic strengths, right? Um, or limitations isn't the right word, the fact that we are not equally strong 
on all dimensions intrinsically. It's probably a more precise way of saying it. There are just things that naturally we can be top single digit percent at, right? And there are things where it's like, yeah, you can, you can probably get to a level of mastery, but it's just going to be so hard for you. It's going to be like swimming upstream. And so the question is, is like, is it worth the investment of your time that it will take you to be top single digit percent in this thing that doesn't come easy to you? So do you mitigate your weaknesses or do you just lean into the things where you're already naturally very easily top 1%, you know, and then like by leaning into it, you can be top 0.0001%. You can be the best in the world at that thing. And it feels easy and it feels enjoyable because you get this sense of competence and ease and this state of flow, right? And that was like a huge kind of like mind-blowing thing for me because like I was raised by parents who really expected you to just be like a straight-A student. And like, and I was for like a portion of my academic career before I discovered music and dropped out of college to be in a band twice, but we can talk about that later. But like, but the problem with getting straight A's and being a straight-A student is like you can't really see like where you're naturally strong. Right. And so like I was laboring under the, and you just get like it drilled into you that you have to mitigate your weaknesses. Right. Because if you're capable of an A, you should get an A, but then you go out in the world and you realize you have finite time, finite resources, finite energy. And the best way to attack a problem in a world where you are finite is to identify your strengths and you will get the most accomplished in the least amount of time with the least amount of resources. Um, so, and understanding that and understanding that that is true for everybody is like a huge part of mutual appreciation because you appreciate, Hey, I'm strong at these things. These are my skill sets. This is where I'm going to make my dent in the world. But man, there's this other person over here who has a completely different mix of strengths. And even though I don't possess those strengths, if I can figure out how to work closely with this other person, we're doubling our impact, you know, and that's like a magical place to be. I want to share Scott, uh, I think these strength finder assessments are so important, but I think another factor of it, you talked about how with Skylar's team, that was something you all started with to get a sense of the team. And there was a lot of, um, diversity on the team. It sounds like of thought and experience, but something, a practice that I have always loved when a team needs something like that, but is it's hard for them to see themselves is I just call it the plate activity, but it's literally taking a paper plate, taping it to your back, like physically taping a paper plate to your back. Everyone in the room or on your team has a pencil or pen um, or marker. And they literally write on your back a word that describes you or a strength that you have. And so you go around the room and people look ridiculous because they're like leaning on each other's, you know, backs as they're writing. But the activity at the end is they pull the plate off and you get to see how other people see you and see the strengths that other people describe you as. Because I think sometimes what happens is the strength finders are good as an initial kickoff, but sometimes we forget what other people see in us 
which can be so vastly different than the way we see ourselves. And so I've done that with groups of, you know, a hundred people in a single room. Um, you're not going to get a hundred people's thoughts on the plates, but I've had people come back years later and say, I have that plate pinned in my office as a reminder that I'm so much more than what the strengths I initially had were. It's much more vast. Mm, I love that. I'll bet you you got a fair amount of tears in that exercise too. Yeah. I think I get a lot of people who are really surprised that their coworkers see them in the light that they do. And I think with a lot of, I want to address the remote workplace when you can't be in person, jam boards are a great space to do that. Um, whiteboarding things, padlets. So there's lots of tools out there to replicate that same experience for those of you that are remote. Yeah. And you're right. I mean, in a remote work environment or a hybrid work environment, you have to be a lot more intentional about creating those connections But man, just how powerful is it to be seen? You know, I think we all need it and it's so touching. And I mean, even just hearing this story, like I kind of am tearing up a little bit, but it's like, you wonder why you have such a deep reaction to it. And honestly, it's because of how scarce it is. Like we just don't do that for each other frequently enough. Like I think it really comes down to one of these attributes of trust and psychological safety in a workplace, which is the belief that no one on the team would deliberately act in a way that undermines my efforts. And um, and <laughs> I've worked for more companies than I, I've worked for more companies that have done this wrong than companies that have done this right. Because I think the path of least resistance is design is to design incentive structures and promotion practices in a way that pits people against each other and doesn't appropriately incentivize collaboration. Um, and, um, and so people withhold this affirmation from each other because the last thing you want to do is put wind in the sails of somebody that you're going to get stack ranked against at the end of the year, you know? Um, and, uh, and I think that that's a shame because it's like, you know, you put those stack ranks in place because you tell yourself as a leader that you are trying to create a culture of accountability and performance, but you're really undermining both. Yeah, that's, that's really powerful. And I think let's wrap up the discussion with telling the listeners a little bit more about how their company can cultivate psychological safety. Yeah, this is great. So this is how do we actually do the thing now that we understand why it's important and what it looks like. Um, So the author suggests there are four distinct ways of making sure that you can cultivate psychological safety in the workplace. Number one, make it clear that you expect feedback. Number two, be vulnerable. Make it clear that you're not infallible. Number three, solicit input. So don't just say you expect feedback and wait passively for it to come. Go out there and actually solicit that input. And this last one, respond well. So be worthy of the feedback that is given to you. Don't be reactive about it. And this last piece is... So crucial. Replace blame with curiosity. I could talk about that last one all day, but I don't know. Sarah, something tells me that you've got 
great insights about that last piece, especially. I think it's the idea of creating space between stimulus and response. When you solicit feedback, you're going to hear feedback. And sometimes that feedback is going to break your heart and it's really hard to hear. But what's more important than the feedback itself is the actions that you take in the response to the feedback. Because if you say, I, ex- I will listen to all feedback, and you respond with, well, a lot of you guys are just feeling like, you know, it's, it's not going well here, and you're, there's too many meetings, so I can't really change that. I'm so sorry, but thanks, thanks for sharing. It's a complete deflection. And it's placing blame. And what you have to do to cultivate safety is you have to kind of picture it like a mirror. When you get feedback, the easiest thing to do, it's human condition of being reactive, is it's really easy to turn the mirror and face it outward and say, look at what you've done. You guys have created all of this. What the author is saying when she says replace blame with curiosity what you're doing is you're turning it in and you're saying, I need to examine myself first to say, what role did I play in this? How did I show up? Where's the gap in my thought and execution of whatever it is? And then by you modeling that true pause between between the feedback and your response your team will act in kind. But doing that explicitly, not behind a door or outside of a meeting, but saying, you can be vulnerable and say, this feedback was difficult for me. And I took a long time to think about it. And I turned the mirror. Here's what I discovered. I want you to know that this is what I own. And I also want you to know this is what I hear. And here's what I'm going to do. But I think so many companies, Scott, like you, I've unfortunately worked, the majority of my companies that I've worked in have not done a great job of this, being really transparent about psychological safety and chasing after it. A lot of people will say, oh, we love feedback. Feedback is fantastic. We're always doing the 360s. We're always doing the spot checks. We're always looking at the promoter scores. But there is a difference between administration of those things and culture changes as a result of those. I, that's so powerful. I 100% agree. I mean, like, and just to make it a little bit more tangible, like one of the things that I was thinking of as you went through through those examples was, you know, I think that you don't have trust in psychological safety in your organization, if it is not possible for an individual contributor to walk up to a vice president or C-level executive in your company and say, hey, you know that thing you said in the last all hands? I think that it totally devalued you know, our experience or I feel like it was insensitive or didn't consider like these pieces. And I think that a better way to approach it might be X. Right. And you know, you have trust in psychological safety in your environment 
if those conversations not just could happen, but do happen. And if the VPs and the CEOs or, you know, even mid senior level managers respond to that and say, Hey, thanks for giving me the feedback. I know that must've been tough to surface, you know, and let me think about it and I'll get back to you. And then they do get back to you. Right. And they respond in a way that is thoughtful, even if the end decision is we're still going to move forward with it this way. You know, it's like I now have a broader understanding of the impacts that that are there um, and that exist underneath the surface. And I've worked at exactly one company in the last 10 years (laughs) where that culture of feedback and safety existed to that level. And granted, like that's an advanced like ninja level of psychological safety um, where you can not only give feedback within the context of a team, but give feedback within the context of the entire organization, regardless of seniority. Um, But that's the grail, right? Um, Because we're all humans the end of the day, regardless of what letters precede or follow your name. So, um, yeah, I love that. Um, I love the idea too. Um, and I just want to dig into it a little bit more about replacing blame with curiosity, right? And not just like eliminating blame, (laughs) Right. Because I think like it's easy for all of us that there's that caricature of like the, you know, alpha executive who just goes down the room, like pointing at all the execs or, you know, in the room and like verbally undressing all of them. And it's profanity laden and it's high energy. And, you know, really, you know, right off the bat that that, you know, that that executive is a jerk. (laughs) Right. Um, And you know that that's unacceptable behavior, but it's not enough just to not blame, right? You need to replace that blame with something, right? Because otherwise there's no accountability, there's no learning at all. So what do you replace it with? Replacing it with curiosity is such a powerful tool for so many reasons. Like one of them is it creates safety because by asking questions about why something didn't turn out the way we thought it would or the way that it should, it gives the power back to the person who is in the seat where they would traditionally just be volleyed with blame. But instead of being crushed under the weight of the blame, this more senior leader is asking, tell me a little bit more about this. Like, what was the most difficult thing? Where did you have this challenge? What stuff did you try? You know, why did the things that you tried not work? You know, and you get the opportunity instead of coming from a reactive and defensive place saying, but you don't understand, I did X, Y, and Z. You're being given the mic and you can talk about like, well, let me tell you about my experience, you know? And now you can flow into a coaching conversation, right? Or maybe it's possible that that person did absolutely nothing wrong and the problem was just way more complex than you had previously anticipated. Either way, you learn something. Either way, you make an investment in your company's ability to do that task better the next time around, right? And you'll learn things about like yourself 
and other people who aren't necessarily in the room, rather than limiting yourself to a very myopic view of what happened and what was going on. Um, so I love this idea of curiosity. Um, and I love this idea, Sarah, of separating stimulus and response. Gosh, how, how often do we just snap right back the second that we hear something that makes us not feel good? It takes practice and self-awareness to take a beat, take a breath, and respond in a way that we can be proud of. Um, and not, not enough of us do that. Um, I love the first three, right? Which is make it clear that you expect feedback, be vulnerable, make it clear that you're not infallible and then solicit input. All three of these are really around this idea of like, we, like we are not islands unto ourselves, right? Just because something is coming from the desk of the CEO or the most senior person in your department or it doesn't mean that that is gospel, that it's been handed down to us from, you know, from God, right? It means that this is our best hypothesis of what the right thing is to do, given the information that we have available. But it also, again, puts the power back into the rest of the organization, which is like, we expect you to inform us of our blind spots. We expect you to question us because we are not infallible. We know that there are things that we might have overlooked that because of our own experiences and biases, we, not, we might not be able to see clearly, right? And then this idea of not just saying that and having it be lip service and then retreating to your office and closing the door, but then also walking the floor, you know, either virtually or physically and soliciting those input, making, making those connections um, and really making it clear that that's what you expect. So when I was working for that one company that I mentioned earlier in the podcast, which is the one company that did trust in psychological safety, I think the best of any company that I've ever worked at. Um, I was leading an operations center at the time, about 400 people in the center. And we were making a huge change management push to completely redefine the way that we did work in that context. And it was like really controversial because, you know, just to give more specifics, we used to be an email only customer service center. And then in preparation for going public, we decided that we wanted a more multi-channel service experience because the relationships and the quality of conversation that we create with our customers was actually very germane to the overall quality of the service we were delivering. And so we're like, it's not enough just to do these asynchronous emails. It's a little too impersonal. It's not very timely. We want to do synchronous communication as well. And so what did that mean? That meant chat and that meant phones. And in addition to being technologically a large undertaking for an organization of that size, we had to implement like new tools and new systems and configure them and train people on them. It was probably like more of an intrinsic fear-based issue because like a lot of the people in this contact center, you know, were on the younger side. They've been raised in a world where, you know, texting is the norm, not calling on the phone, 
right? And so this idea of delivering service on the phone caused a lot of people a significant amount of anxiety, right? And, um, and instead of just rolling it out and being like, tough, this is what the business needs, <laughs> you know, we're just going to do it now. Um, we made sure to scope in a lot of time and effort to the change management process. So what did we do? We created, um, we created a group of emissaries, line level people who would pilot the program with us, who would give feedback directly to the senior sponsor of the initiative, which was me. And they felt like really invested and their perspective was being heard and they were co-creating what the future of this new skill was going to look like in the department. And because there were about 30 of them who were kind of in that alpha stage with us, alongside us, they were able to share their perspectives and start quelling the fear that existed more broadly within the organization. And then what we did was we launched an all hands and we celebrated the impact that that pilot group had done. And we named them by name and we bought them sweatshirts and we put them on a pedestal and we shone a light on, thank you for being brave. Thank you for like, you know, kind of going against the grain of what you were most comfortable with for, and giving us the feedback for the betterment of this organization and for the betterment of the service to our clients. Right. And that created, a, that worked a little too well. It created some FOMO and people were like, why does that team get all the attention? And it's like, We'll find ways to bring attention to other people too. But for right now, we need to really kind of sit and celebrate, you know, what this team is doing. And then what we did is I said, you know what, like we want feedback from you. And so we sent like a survey and we kind of tried to gauge like, hey, did that really kind of help, you know, your experience or perspective of what this new service capability is going to be? And we could have left it there. A lot of, a lot of companies don't even go that far. But then I was like, you know what, if you want one-on-one -on -one time with me, I'm going to have office hours for the next few weeks where I block off two-hour blocks, two or three days a week, and anybody can come into my office and you don't have to have it scheduled. Just walk in. Let's have a conversation about it. And I got pretty good participation for the first couple of sessions, but then people started trickling off. And so I walked the floor and I started talking to people about their experience just informally you know, and soliciting input that way. And then more people started coming to these sessions, you know, and, um, and it was that invitation that really incentivized people to feel safe again. And so at the end of the day, like we launched the new capability, it was just in time for our IPO. Like we entered IPO with our highest customer satisfaction scores ever. Right. And, um, and we were a lot more efficient as an organization to boot. And, I think like that's a really great example of just how it's not a one and done type of thing. It's not like a mission or, or it's not like a value that you put on the wall somewhere and just kind of like let it atrophy. <laughs> you know, it's something that you got to live and practice every single day. All right. Well, thank you all for coming to my TED Talk. Now that I've concluded my monologue, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up the episode for us this week. That concludes our discussion on trust and psychological safety in the workplace. Again, our episode today was a review of an article written by Amy Gallo in the Harvard Business Review called What is Psychological Safety? You should definitely check it out if you haven't already. It's a great read. And I hope that you'll join us next week where we're going to be shifting gears a little bit and talking about 
some current events. Specifically, we're going to be talking about some of the stuff that's been going on at Twitter recently and, uh, and discussing what we think about that. So hopefully you'll join us next week and we'll see you then.